when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. After a long jaunt abroad, Boris Johnson returned to the UK to be faced with another host of problems, including yet another Pestminster scandal. These allegations are really serious. This is about sexual assault. So the idea that the Prime Minister thinks he's done the decent thing by resigning, there's no need for an investigation, well, that's a total disgrace. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be examining the Prime Minister's turns at the G7 and NATO summits, his stance on Ukraine, relations with France, whether his efforts to project an image of global Britain worked. But we'll also be examining his hard bump back to earth with the resignation of the Deputy Chief Whip, Chris Pincher, as you heard Labour's Yvette Cooper mention at the top. Political editor George Parker and political correspondent Jasmine Cameron Seleshi will explore. And later, we'll be delving into Nicola Sturgeon's latest push for another Scottish independence referendum in 2023, even without the consent of Westminster. And if it fails, the First Minister has an interesting backup plan. The FT's new Scotland correspondent, Lucan Miranda, will discuss with our Chief Political Correspondent, Robert Shrimsley. Thank you all for joining. Boris Johnson has undertaken one of his longest jaunts out of the country since he became PM. First, he was in Kigali for the Commonwealth World Leaders' Summit. Then it was off to the Bavarian Alps for a meeting of the G7 leaders. And finally, the Prime Minister was in Madrid for a NATO Defence Summit. For Johnson, these are the moments of being Prime Minister he savours, astride the world stage, projecting an image of British influence, particularly with regards to the war in Ukraine. But much of these trips were dogged by problems back at home. The loss of those two critical by-elections last week, the resignation of the party chairman, further leadership unrest, and to top it all off, the resignation of Chris Pincher on Thursday evening over inappropriate conduct allegations. But despite all these problems in Westminster, Johnson claimed he was eagerly looking forward to returning to his home patch. Yes, I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to get. Not that I've, I've been wonderful being here in Madrid, as you, as you want, uh, as indeed I enjoyed being in Kigali and, and, and Germany. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, there's no place like home. So I'm, 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 keen, I'm, I'm keen to get back. Well, Jasmine Cameron-Sleshi, welcome back to you as well. You've been with the Prime Minister on those trips in the Alps and in Munich, and you heard by that rather enthusiastic clip, it did sound like he does want to get home. But give us an overview of his general mood and how you thought broadly the G7 and NATO summits went down for him. So my sense is that his mood was one of determination. And I think, as you said, I think Johnson is at his best when he's in almost salesman mode. So whether that's selling London on the world stage as mayor or whether it's selling British values at the G7 or NATO. And I think he was really keen to put the focus on what's happening in Ukraine, the West relationship with Russia. And he was really keen to sort of 
not lean into some of the domestic issues at home. And in one sense, G7 and NATO, Johnson can walk away from it feeling as though it's been a success for the UK and that there was no big row with Prince Charles over Rwanda. There wasn't any sort of bust up between the UK and France or the UK and any other Western country. And he even managed to squeeze in a couple of policy announcements. We saw additional military support for Ukraine, boost in defence spending. So he can walk away from the both summits sort of feeling as though he's achieved something tangible. But as you lead to who's you know you're not just a pm abroad you're a pm at home and it's about getting that balance of yes projecting the uk on the world stage but also making sure your backbenchers and the public are happy with your performance well george parker watching from westminster what's your sense of how the pm did on those three george well i agree with jasmine that he looked comfortable on the world stage and that's partly because he's got the position right on the ukraine conflict he's um, been on the front foot from the start he was one of the britain was one of the first countries to provide arms to Ukraine. He's confident in his positions there. So I think, you know, in that respect, it's gone pretty well for him. Jasmine mentioned the fact that he had a meeting with Macron, which um, didn't degenerate into the usual le row, which is the staple of meetings between the two for correspondence from both sides of the channel. And they've even seemed to arrange tentatively a, a long-delayed Anglo-French summit. But that doesn't get away from the fact that there are many tensions around the British relationship with Europe, which won't be disguised by that but they will try and find a way of talking about defence. But he was away from the country at quite a, a crucial moment after those two by-elections in Tiverton, Honison and Wakefield. The party mood is fractious back home. So when you heard Boris Johnson in that clip there saying he couldn't wait to get back, I'm not so sure about that. Well, let's look at some of the stuff the Prime Minister announced. And I think the most striking one has to be this increase in the UK's defence budget. And Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, has made some very clear deputations to Downing Street saying following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we do need to increase defence spending. And the Prime Minister, speaking at the end of the NATO summit, confirmed that's exactly what he was going to do. We need to invest for the long term in vital capabilities like future combat air, while simultaneously adapting to a more dangerous and more competitive world. And the logical conclusion of the investments on which uh, we propose to embark uh, of these decisions is that we will reach 2.5% of GDP on defence by the end of the decade. Well, Jasmine, that is a considerable uplift in the UK's defence spending. It's something that will warm the cockles of Tory MPs who always love spending more money on defence. A, it's not going to be immediate, it's going to be gradual. And B, there is some scepticism, particularly from Labour, on whether this is actually going to happen, given inflation and given many of the spending pledges made by Johnson that haven't quite come to fruition. What do you make of it? It's quite interesting how this story sort of developed over the course of the week, because at the very beginning of the sort of G7 and NATO summits, there were, we heard from Defence Secretary Ben Wallace and Foreign Secretary Liz Truss really voicing their concern about the state of UK's defence spending and whether we we were spending enough given the um, crises in, in Ukraine. And we also heard that ministers are set to miss their manifesto target of increasing defence spending by 0.5% above inflation each year. So it really seemed as though the narrative that was going to come out of both summits was that actually the UK isn't doing enough on this front. But Johnson sort of seemed to try to appease those concerns and his increased pledge. I think it sort of speaks to his wider argument that actually he's essentially given a blank check to this crisis. 
So Johnson's been asked repeatedly throughout the G7 and NATO summits as to whether the UK is willing to place any limits when it comes to time or money being spent on the Ukraine conflict. And he hasn't really given any clarity. And he's constantly repeated this phrase of the cost of freedom is always worth paying. So you get the sense that certainly this is a key issue for Johnson. He doesn't just want to be encouraging other countries to be increasing their spending. He actually does want to be putting his money where his mouth is. As Jasmine was saying, that these so-called commitments from Boris Johnson at the end of the summit to increase defence spending in the UK to 2.5% of GDP by 2030, it's not actually really a commitment at all. Essentially, there's a spending review commitment to spend over 2% of GDP up until 2024. And then after that, everything's up for grabs. So making commitments beyond the next election are really not commitments at all, to be frank. And Boris Johnson needs to sound like he wants to spend more money on defence. But in the end, the Treasury will always be very sceptical. They'll point at some of the disastrous procurement projects that the MOD have undertaken, including the infamous Ajax armoured vehicle scandal, and wonder whether this is a good use of money. There's another thing, of course, that while people like Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, and Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, both potential Tory leadership contenders, know that extra defence spending might be popular with the Tory selectorate, but the population as a whole, I think they'd much rather money was spent on things like helping helping them through the cost of living crisis. So there's the crunch. And that's why Boris Johnson's making these commitments a long way out into the future. And George, what do you think this means for the UK's positioning within both the G7 and NATO here? Because obviously, the UK has been on the forefront of the Ukraine crisis. And I think that was quite apparent. And clearly, if the 2.5% target is hit, the UK will be number two in NATO in terms of a military power after the United States. So there's a kind of clear vision about how Johnson wants to push forward global Britain there. Will it put pressure on other NATO members to put forward more money? Will it change or improve the UK's international standing, do you think? Well, you'd hope so. But the fact is that Britain's been the number two contributor to NATO for many years. It's one of the very few countries, to Britain's credit, that's honoured the commitment to spend 2% of GDP consistently on defence spending. And, you know, I think I'm right in saying that Spain, the host of the NATO summit, currently spends about 1% of its GDP. So I think Boris Johnson's right to be using the bully pulpit to try to persuade other countries to actually up their spending. And we are starting to see countries like Germany, for example, starting to raise their game in that respect. I suppose one other thing to say about British defence spending and military is we are, alongside France, preeminent military powers in Europe, the only powers really with even a notional capability to deploy forces out of area. And for Boris Johnson, that's quite important because it's a way of asserting British influence in Europe, particularly in countries on the front line with Russia, like the Nordic countries, the Baltic states, Hungary, Poland, countries like that in the aftermath of Brexit, where a lot of our diplomatic links have been strained. So it is important for Boris Johnson, but actually raising that amount of spending beyond the 2% target we've currently got is going to be quite tough, I think, to get past the Treasury. And to our final thing from these international summits, Jasmine, what were relations like between Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron? And as George said, there was no Lirao or whatever you want to describe it as between the two. And mainly the pictures and the language seemed to have more of a bonhomie than you might have seen before. But in terms of the actual substance, was there anything there to note? I mean, Number 10 were definitely very, have been very keen to get across this idea that actually Johnson and Macron have sort of patched up any differences and they're fully on the same page and that the phrase Le Bromance was, is, you know, was banded around. So in terms of tangible things that have come out of their um, G7 bilateral meeting, I mean, they've agreed to hold an additional summit for later in the year. I mean, but I would always take 
some of these briefings with a, a pinch of salt in that what was striking is that, yes, the two seem to now be on the same page with Ukraine, but there are still lots of issues between the UK and France, whether that's the channel crossings, whether that's Brexit. There's still a lot of tension there. And I think those issues didn't really seem to come up in any of the discussions. It takes a long time to sort of rebuild a relationship and to sort of get to a stage where both sides fully trust and are on side of each other. So I think it was positive spinning and briefing. We'll have to sort of keep an eye on this over the next few months and see actually whether the mood music is still the same when we sort of look at some of these more trickier issues like Brexit, like um, migration, for example. I think the relationship between those two is is frankly broken. Emmanuel Macron regards Boris Johnson as someone who's unreliable, not serious. And I don't think any amount of diplomatic flammery will ever get around that. I think the the bet in the Elysee Palace is that Boris Johnson won't be Prime Minister much longer and he can start to do business with someone else. Now, let's bring this back towards home for a moment and that news about Chris Pinter at the top. Before that broke on Thursday, we had Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday and it was actually one of those rare sessions where both the deputies were doing it. It was Angela Rayner for Labour and Dominic Raab for the Tories and for once, it was quite a buoyant joust. The Prime Minister isn't just losing the room, Mr Speaker, he's losing the country. But instead of showing some humility, he intends to limp on until the 2030s. So does he think the Cabinet will prop him up for this long? Deputy Prime Minister. I thank the Right Honourable Lady. Um, I gently point out to her that we want this Prime Minister to go on a lot longer than she wants the leader of the Labour Party to go on. Well, George, obviously, this brings us back to the question of Boris Johnson's standing, which we seem to talk about every week on this podcast, since there's always ups and downs about this. Obviously, the promise is back, and it's a pretty turbulent thing he's coming back to here. There are these continued questions about, is there going to be another leadership challenge? But before all that, he is pretty much facing the prospect of having to do a cabinet reshuffle, because it's not just Oliver Dowd and his party chairman he's lost, but he's also lost Chris Pincher. And it was reported by The Sun, who broke the story on Thursday evening, that Mr. Pincher got very drunk at the Carlton Club, which is an exclusive Palm Isle Gentleman's Club for Tories, and inappropriately groped two men. And he wrote a letter to the Prime Minister saying, Dear Prime Minister, I got too drunk last night. What do you make of it? Well, it's not great, is it, to have the person you've put in charge of installing discipline in the party getting drunk at the Carlton Club and then allegedly groping or sexually assaulting two men. And we obviously haven't heard the end of this. I mean, Chris Pinch's fate is hanging in the balance now, the chief whip. Chris Eaton-Harris is launching, or at least starting an investigation into what happened. We'll be speaking to him. A lot of pressure now on Boris Johnson to expel Chris Pincher from the party. That would trigger a by-election in Tamworth in the West Midlands, where Mr Pincher has a majority of almost 20,000. But in the current climate, you wouldn't bet against Labour winning that seat. So it's something that Boris Johnson's desperate to avoid, not least because Chris Pincher is a loyal ally of the Prime Minister. But I was covering, you know, Westminster back in, way back in the 90s when we had the back-to-basics scandal. And frankly, you know, some of, the, some of the scandals that happened back in the 90s, so-called, were nothing compared with some of the very serious allegations being made against Conservative MPs at the moment. We had uh, Imran Khan, the former MP for Wakefield, on charges of historic sexual offences. We've got David Warburton, who's a Somerset MP, has the whip suspended over allegations of sexual misconduct, drug-taking, um, you've had a Tory MP arrested on rape allegations who's unnamed but currently not allowed to attend Parliament. These are all very serious things. And you could say, well, this is just human frailty. You know, in any workforce, you'll get a few wrong The voters might start to see this as not just about individual human weakness or bad behaviour. 
but to do with something to do with arrogance of power. And that was what got John Major in the end, the idea that people had just become drunk on power, thought they could get away with anything. And it just gave the impression that they were sleazy and they were out of energy and it was time they were out of office. And that's a really serious problem for Boris Johnson to contend with. Well, Jasmine, as we record this on Friday morning, Chris Pincher has resigned as Deputy Chief Whip. And as George says, it's unbelievable that the man who was meant to be in charge of HR and party discipline himself has had to resign. But he still has the Conservative Party Whip. And it's been reported in a couple of places that Downing Street was aware of some allegations about Mr Pincher. It does feel as if it's not going to be sustainable for him to remain a Tory MP because people are comparing this to Neil Parrish, MP for Tiverton Honiton, who watched pornography in the House of Commons. And the fact that he obviously had to quit as an MP and caused the by-election. And there's no doubt the Tory party does not want yet another by-election. But it does feel as if there's sort of two levels here because of the fact Mr. Pincher is a close ally of Boris Johnson. He was brought in as deputy chief whip to shore up his position in February that they are sort of trying to protect him. And one would have to think if there's any further allegations or maybe just press from MPs, he will be kicked out of the party or at least suspended. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. It does feel as though number 10 is trying to sort of shield Pincher from the consequences of his actions. And I think what was particularly striking, sort of the G7 and NATO summits, is that Johnson was repeatedly asked about the 1922 committee, about leadership. And he sort of, he told reporters that his quote unquote golden rule was that politicians shouldn't be talking about themselves and their policies. It was a slightly odd approach to take. It's now clear that that sort of stance, it can't hold. Now he's back in the UK, he does have to answer these questions about his leadership and his authority. And there are genuine questions about whether his MPs or voters trust him. And while certainly I think Downing Street will be very keen to avoid another by-election over this, I don't see what is gained by allowing Pincher to remain as an MP, by sort of allowing this story to drag out for any further. So it'd be interesting to see, you know, what happens over the weekend and whether a judgment is made that actually it's not sustainable to have this individual in the Tory party anymore. And finally, George, do you agree that we could be facing a reshuffle sooner rather than later because there's now two quite clear gaps in the government? And, you know, after the amount of times we've written, there's going to be a reshuffle stories and it doesn't actually happen. But they are going to have to fill these sooner or later. And this has been in the ether. So you would think that number 10 might just seize on the moment to get on with it. I think this is where we fundamentally disagree, Seb. I don't think there's going to be a cabinet reshuffle anytime soon. Cabinet reshuffles are things that are laden with political risk. They're much more useful if you're a weak prime minister to have hanging over people to keep people in line. Once you've actually done the reshuffle, you create more enemies than friends. You create a whole load of people who are disappointed they didn't get the job they thought they'd been offered. In fact, quite often the prime minister will offer the same job to multiple people. Particularly this prime minister. And you end up with a whole load of very disillusioned people. I don't think there's going to be a reshuffle anytime soon. You're right, there are a couple of vacancies which Boris Johnson will have to fill. But the idea that A reshuffle will strengthen Boris Johnson's hand, in my view, is completely misplaced. All reshuffles are a disaster for prime ministers, even for strong ones, but for weak ones, even more so. And finally, I have to ask you about the question we're now asking at the end of every single segment of Payne's politics, which is, do we think Boris Johnson still survives? Now, George, we talked about this midweek. Are you sticking with your prediction or are you going to change it? My my prediction that he, he would stagger on until the next election is based primarily on the the inability of the rebels to organise themselves to get rid of Boris Johnson. You meet lots of people now who say he's 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 finished. I'm not so sure about that. I think I'm sort of I'm still havering a bit, as you can tell, Seb. I think really what Boris Johnson wants to do is to stagger into the summer recess and hope that something turns up over the summer. I'm not quite sure what. And Jasmine, what's your feeling? Will Boris Johnson still fight the next election? 
I'd give a cautious yes. I do agree with George's assessment that actually the rebels haven't really been very organised or coordinated up until this point. I mean, that could change very quickly. It only takes a couple of ringleaders to decide that they're either going to change the rules for the 1922 committee, they're going to put more letters in. I mean, politics is the sort of place where things can change in the course of a few hours. So I'd say for now, yes, but I think, you know, that could all change pretty quickly and pretty soon. Well, I think I'd better just stick with the crowds then and stick with my prediction, which is essentially, yes, he will somehow stagger on, but I would agree with George that maybe those odds are shortening a little. George and Jasmine, thank you very much. Is Scotland heading for another independence referendum? Well, Nicola Sturgeon seems to think so based on her actions this week. After a lot of waiting, the First Minister announced her plan to hold another plebiscite on breaking away from the UK in October 2023. There's only one problem, though. She doesn't actually have the power to do it. That resides in Westminster. To get around this, she's taking the matter straight to the Supreme Court to try and hold it without Boris Johnson's say-so. Announcing her latest plan for a referendum, Sturgeon said that if it failed, she would instead seek to use the next UK-wide general election as a de facto referendum on independence. I hope we can uh, resolve these things in a referendum. That is the proper way of doing it. But if all routes are blocked on that, then the general election will become the vehicle for people to express their view. Scotland can't become independent without a majority of people voting for it, which is... A majority of votes uh, have to be cast for independence before Scotland. That's a basic uh, principle of democracy. Well, first, welcome to a new person to the Payne's politics lineup, Lucania Mianda, the FT's new Scotland correspondent. It's like to have you on. How are you finding Scotland in your new role? It's wonderful to be back. I was in Scotland before and, and it's, I was away for like four years and then to have come back and seen nothing much has changed. We're back to having the same debates again. And then I arrived back and Scotland independence is on the news again and totally from prime ministers facing like votes of confidence. So nothing much changed and I'm looking forward to, to, to actually continuing again. Yeah, it's sort of always quite depressing in a way that everything is just cyclical at the moment. So tell us, what did you make of Nicola Sturgeon's announcement this week? Because she's been agitating for India F2 for some time, but it's been pretty clear that there's no plan to actually get it. And it sort of felt to me this week, there still really isn't a clear plan to have another vote. I mean, it caught a lot of people by surprise, but but at some point she had to make a move. Like, I mean, there's politics here, there's also the legality, There's but, but I think the politics is a bigger story. Like after the lull in the last two years, you know, she was concentrating on COVID. I think her base was happy to sit back, but now COVID is thankfully like has come down, if not over. Now she has to get the, the ball rolling again. But as you say, like this role, what she said this week hasn't made it any clearer uh, how she actually gets there in terms of the mechanisms legally. Well, Robert Shrimsley, it's great to have you back as always. And obviously the SNP came out on top in May's recent Holyrood elections. And that obviously, again, has increased the pressure on Ms. Durgin to do something. And within the SNP, I guess there's kind of two wings. There's the more provisional wing, which has been advocating pretty much what Ms. Durgin is doing, which is to say to try and have a referendum without the say-so of Westminster. The other wing, which he's been more lied to up until now, now is to just keep on pushing and increasing the pressure on Westminster. What do you make of this plan and how do you see it playing out? I think it's very interesting. The first thing to say, in fairness to the SNP, this is their primary purpose, which is to secure Scottish independence. And so you've got to expect that they're going to consistently seek ways to push it back up the agenda and also to find ways to get things moving again. The fundamental problem she's had 
ever since uh, the Holyrood elections is that she's been stuck. The SNP itself fell just short of an absolute majority, but when combined with the Scottish Greens who also support independence, there is a mandate within the Scottish Parliament for parties supporting another referendum. The problem is, as you make clear at the top, the British government has the final say on whether you can have a referendum and it's not budging. So she's stuck and she's caught between the immovable Boris Johnson and her own activists saying, well, come on, you've got to get going. So in many ways, there's very little new in this. But the one thing that I think is clever is not only stating that she intends to hold a referendum in October 23, but actually referring herself to the Supreme Court in the UK. So in other words, attempting to determine whether it would be legal in any way at the outset, not waiting for the government or unionists to challenge her. And what that says to me is this is about forestalling those in her own party who are pushing her to, to, to be more assertive and aggressive. So I think that's quite a clever tactic because if, as all the legal experts suggest, she loses in the Supreme Court, then she can say, look, we're not having a legal referendum. We tried. We've got to move on. And that's why she says put the focus on the British general election. That's a bit rich, to be honest, because in the first past the post system, even though the combined votes of unionist parties are likely to outnumber the combined votes of the Scottish National Party, because it's the only nationalist party, it tends to mop up at these elections. So I think the British government that opposed independence would certainly say, no, you'll have to do it again at the Holyrood elections. But it's fundamentally an attempt to put this back up on the agenda, get things moving. Because actually, the striking thing is that considering all the things that have happened since the last referendum, the Brexit, obviously, Boris Johnson, who's not liked in Scotland, or the pandemic where she was judged to have had a good pandemic. The striking thing is that in the opinion polls, they haven't really moved. They're still putting support for independence in the mid to high 40s. So for all those reasons, it's not motoring. Furthermore, Scots are saying in polls they don't want to vote this year or next. So I think she's got to get some action going, and that's what she's about. I think that that is really is the main issue, like having referring herself to the, to the Supreme Court. It also like speeds up the process, because otherwise she would have had to you know, start the process herself and then have it being challenged by the Attorney General, the UK's Attorney General, and then having to go back to court. Now now she sort of gets that sort of out of the way. And in a way, this is a win-win. You know? Obviously, if, if if the Supreme Court rules that, that Scotland can indeed hold a referendum, which not, not many people actually believe would happen, then it puts, I think, a moral and political pressure on the unionist parties to, to, to play ball because it could be hard for them then to say, well, it's got no legitimacy or that we're going to boycott it. But then on the other hand, if she loses, that's also a win because then, then you can drive the point that, that, that Scotland really does not have a route to self-determination within the Westminster system. The politicians in the Westminster say no, the courts, they say no. So it's, in a way, it strengthens the case for independence <laughs> on a moral and a political level. And, 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 it will, and it also would keep her base quite happy. In the unlikely event that the Supreme Court said, yes, you can go ahead with this referendum, one of the points she's made is it's consultative rather than official binding referendum, is that actually could be a bad outcome for Nicola Sturgeon in a way, because what would happen on a consultative referendum which the unionists didn't believe in, so it wasn't official, is they would boycott it. And so you could end up with a situation where you have a consultative referendum, which the nationalist side wins by something like 95% on a 40% turnout. It seems to be perfectly plausible if people don't believe this referendum is really going to count. And then actually they've ended up weakening their case, particularly when people don't want that referendum. So I do think she's rather counting on losing that court challenge. 
And Kanye, I think this is the key point about all this, really, is that I don't think anyone in the senior echelons of the SNP think that there is going to be an independence referendum in October 2023 because they've applied for Section 30 before. You know, Theresa May very famously said, now is not the time for another referendum. And it's much more about a populist thing of trying to paint Westminster against the Scottish people, trying to whip up anger and to try and break that deadlock in the polls. Because as Robert was saying, it's 55 45 against independence. That hasn't budged for quite some time. So this gamble is really trying to move that on. I mean, there is definitely more support for independence now than there was, say, in 2014. Mm. Because I think that most polls now are putting it the no side ahead by a few percentage points. But it's around that 48, 52 level. But if you consider like in 20, before 2014, they came from, from about, about 32%. So, so she actually decided herself, but she think based on, on history, if she had 50-50 as a starting gun or even 45-55 or whatever it is as a starting point, she would happily take that. And I can think like if she has a good campaign, she, she could actually win quite easily based on the precedent from the previous ones. So, so I don't think we should maybe dismiss the polling uh, Completely, but overall, like I, I, th- I think it's, it's probably correct to say, like, uh, they, they, it hasn't been decisive. You know, like I think there were, I think before COVID, and I th- the polls had to had to show a consistent, like, sixty percent support for her to to be confident enough to go. This one, probably not enough. But then, but then it's probably it's probably too close for unionists either to risk it, you know, because <laughs> so, it could go either way. Like in the actual vote, when there's been a, a full on campaign. Exactly. Now, obviously, this has gone down quite badly in Scotland itself with the other parties who are more pro the union. Anna Sawa, who's the leader of Scottish Labour, said that this referendum was just not something that Scots want right now. The partisan Nicola Sturgeon that wants to divide our country is back pursuing a referendum that two thirds of Scots don't want right now. Worse still, isn't she using the thank you she was given and the promise she made to lead us through the recovery to instead pit Scott against Scott and focus on her priority, her obsession and her purpose. Frankly, Scotland deserves better. Robert, when you hear that, how much will that message land? And it was echoed by Douglas Ross, the leader of the Scottish Tories, essentially saying that the SNP are focused on issues that don't matter and there's far more things, be it the economy, the coronavirus pandemic, the war in Ukraine, you name it, all these issues facing nations across the UK at the moment. The timing did seem to sort of come out of nowhere a little bit. Yes and no. I mean, I think, again, to be fair to Nicholson, she said in the Holyrood campaign that now was not the time but that it would be something she intended to do midway through the Holyrood Parliament. So she's stuck by what she said she was going to do. The important thing about the debate that you have to remember is this is a very polarised debate with a middle of maybe 10, 15% of voters who are up for grabs. And everybody is talking to those voters rather than to their own side because there's sort of, you know, the unionist remainers who were very upset about Brexit. There's the people who are mildly sympathetic to nationalism, but not right now. And so now is not the time is a very potent argument. And I think what, what you're seeing is both sides trying to get to those wavering votes. I think there is one, by the way, important overarching thing that's worth raising here, because Nicola Sturgeon makes one, I think, very important and correct point, which is the union is a union of consent. You cannot go on refusing the Scottish people a say on their future if they keep electing SNP governments. At some point, you've got to say, okay, it's another referendum. Now, the British government's argument is we had one eight years ago. We said it was a once in a generation referendum. That's pushing it back, you know, 20 years or so. I think what it does really show is the case for the British government codifying 
what the circumstances are which will permit a new referendum and saying these are the terms I don't know what they are. Maybe it's got to be a minimum of 20 years or maybe you know, you've got to show a consistent and significant lead in the polls which justify whatever terms you want to set. But I think what we do need is a bit of clarity from the British government that makes clear legally, of course, Scotland has the right to leave. Of course, it's a democratic consent issue. But these are the terms which as to how often it can be held. And I think one of the things that she may well secure, whatever happens, is a better degree of codification than we have now. I think that's an important point, Robert, like I, because now there's no set rule about how this can ever happen. And as you said, like, if, I mean, if the SNP keeps winning votes and keeps winning elections in the Holyrood and keeps taking all the Scottish seats in Westminster, it, it cannot be consistent or sustainable that, that, that the UK government can say no indefinitely. So, so there must be a way or, or some kind of route. Otherwise, it, it, it just, the, the, the sense of grievance just, just never goes away. Like, where's the, if, there's a, if there's a system or that people agree with and say, okay, this is, these are the ground rules. A has to happen and B has to happen and then we can maybe have a referendum. But I don't see, so I can't see Boris Johnson actually agreeing to something like that. And I think also like the, the activists from the SNP, like, like, like somebody I spoke to this week said, they wanted the referendum yesterday. So <laughs> anything that sort of delays the, the, the day, like it might not sort of go with, with, with Nicola Sturgeon's supporters, I don't think. I think that's right. And also, you know, the fact is just so much of this is going to be about what happens at the next general election, Robert. Because as we said, Nicola Sturgeon has said, if this plan doesn't work, and I think we could all assume it probably won't by, you know, it maybe there's a slight chance the Supreme Court goes differently, but the basis would be it doesn't. So that means the next general election, which we expect in May 2024, will become the moment for that vote. And by doing that, it benefits the SNP in some ways by saying, look, Westminster is trying to stop you voting voting or Westminster is trying to block democracy. We've got to win over 50% of the vote. Again, those crucial words from Nicola Sturge and the majority of Scottish voters. And if we do that, then we have a real mandate to push for independence. Then, of course, things get much tougher for both ends. Nicola Sturgeon's got to find a way to deliver that referendum. And Boris Johnson has got to find a way of stopping it. I think she'd be very, very reluctant to say we've got to get 50% at a Westminster election because the suggestion is that she won't because when you total up all the unionist party vote, that's quite a difficult thing to do. What she will say is if we get a clear majority of the seats, which you'd have to think was very, very likely, given where they are now. And so it's, it's a really safe bet for her to say, if we win as many Scottish seats as we tend to win, that's the case for referendum. I think in, in terms of the broader election, the key question is what degree of Labour revival you have. Because one of the arguments they have is that we keep getting Conservative governments and Scotland doesn't vote for them. So the more likely it looks that you're going to have um, a hung parliament or a Labour victory, that seems pretty unlikely, the, the less powerful, less likely the Tories are to win, the weaker some of her arguments will be among Scottish voters. So she's got time against her a bit. The SNP have been in power a long time. A Labour revival which sees Labour gaining seats in both Westminster and, and Holyrood is a difficult issue for the Scotnats. So I think she has that sense of running out of time and trying to use Westminster elections as a battering ram, is not foolish. Well, finally, Robert, on this point about how the independence question will play out in the next UK-wide general election, it doesn't just necessarily help the SNP in Scotland, it can also help the Tories in the south of England. And as I wrote about in my column this week, her announcement all plays into what Conservative Party HQ want to do, which is essentially to say that Labour can't win a general election, would have to gain 121 seats, that's a huge ask for Keir Starmer, and instead they have to do a coalition with the Lib Dems and the SNP 
SNP. And the fact that the SNP have said that any vote for them is a vote for independence will play into this idea that voting Lib Dem will allow another independence referendum and break up the country. How do you think that plays out? Yeah, I mean, there's no question the Tories will try and run that campaign because it's worked for them once before. You have to ask how often the Conservatives can keep running a coalition of chaos argument, but it's worked quite. They'll keep doing it. I think it certainly puts pressure on the Labour Party to clarify its position on Scottish independence, on referendum, on what it would do. Keir Starmer's been very clear up to now that he's saying no deals with the SNP. But obviously, if the SNP are the key to him, his getting into power, it raises interesting questions. I have to say, I've always thought the SNP has less power in that debate than you might think, because are they going to really sustain the Conservatives in power if they have the chance of a Labour government? Even if the Labour government won't grant them a referendum, they might find more alignment on other issues. So I don't think the SNP hand is quite as strong as it could be. What it does show is that Keir Starmer is going to have to have a very, very clear position on Scottish referendum, Scottish independence, and he's going to have to face those Tory attacks and have a good answer to them. Well, Lucanio and Robert, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then you could subscribe and make us all very happy. You know where to find it, all the usual channels. You receive your podcast to get episodes every Saturday morning. We also enjoy positive reviews and nice ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Yang Sixworth. Until next week, thank you very much for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.